welcome to Rich in Life, a podcast for anyone looking to be entertained while picking up a few tips on life, luxury, and resilience. And now your host, Rich Irani. Hi, I'm Rich Irani, and you're listening to Rich in Life. Today, I have Andrew Gelwicks. He's a celebrity stylist and author of the book, The Queer Advantage. We talked about everything from fashion and styling to his self-hatred in school, which he makes no secret about and how his family dealt with his suicidal thoughts and clinical depression. Sorry guys, did I bring you down? He was refreshingly honest, overcame it, and still deals with it today while styling some of the most successful people in the most demanding industry. First, I really wanna thank you. I mean, from the vibe I get, you seem more of like a writer, a more private (laughs) person. So I really do appreciate you talking to me. No, I appreciate you inviting me and you know, obviously I'm a fan of your uh, designs and it's nice to, you know, speak with the man behind them. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. But for people that don't know Andrew Gelwicks, I'm going to tell you he's a very interesting person and also a pretty good person. He's very open about his trials and tribulations in life, his ups and downs, very honest about them, which I, I appreciate because it really can help other people. But he is a stylist to the stars and an author to the upcoming book, The Queer Advantage. I've been stalking him on Instagram for a while, seeing where he is, what he's doing, and about his book, trying to get as much information. Because you're kind of interesting. I don't know you are. You, um, you style Lisa Rinna and Delilah Bell Hamlin. That's her daughter, right? And uh, mm-hmm. Tommy Dorfman from the uh, Netflix thing, 13 Reasons Why. Nicole Scherzinger, Catherine O'Hare, who I actually love. I mean, she's from Schitt's Creek, and if and people out there listening, if you haven't watched it, it's really a funny show. It's called Schitt's Creek, and uh, Catherine O'Hare is probably my favorite character, uh, Moira. And I love the way you dress her as well. And she's not so different from her character. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, she doesn't seem so different, is she? <laughs> Style-wise, there's definitely some similarities, but Moira really is in kind of a world of her own. (laughs) Um, And, you know, obviously we want to, you know, you know, keep Moira, Moira. And, but no, there's definitely similarities, but, um, you know, Catherine has incredible taste of her own. It's interesting because her style is so over the top in as Moira, as Moira, she's so over the top fashion wise. I mean, even her, her pajamas are fabulous, you know? So when you tell me there's a similarity, it makes me love her more because yeah, I can imagine what she probably even sleeps in. Who's your favorite person <laughs> to style? Do you have a favorite person to style? You know, I've gotten this, this question before, and I think it's, for me, it's so difficult. I think it's, I tend to answer it more in just the type of person, you know, I think, the people I gravitate towards working with are ones that are really collaborative, creative. They are, you know, just excited about fashion and what that means and whatever that means to them. You know, for some, it's very much a, you know, very visceral uh, freedom of their expression and others it's just they love beautiful things so people who really love that and want to have fun with it I think that's the thing that I love to work with the most and you know I've been fortunate to work with a really great people yeah, I, I, I saw from your whole like history, it's like you really did um, style wonderful people. You're better than I am. I've done some styling over the decades being in, in, in the shop in Chucky's, but I'm the opposite of you. I'm like, just shut up and do as I say. I don't care if you're happy, not happy. <laughs> if I tell you to wear your blazer inside out, don't ask me any questions. Just wear it the way I say it. So yes, you like collaborative, I don't. Do as I say, period. Don't question it. If I have to repeat myself twice, I'm done. 
that's me. I'm, I'm terrible. I'm very impatient. Who have you ever said, have you ever literally, because you seem like such a nice guy, like you're so nice. Have you ever like heard from a client and been like, you know what? Nah, I'm going to pass on this one. Um, that's a no. I'm taking that as a no. No, I think, you know, part of, you know, I think the having, being on the same page style-wise is obviously you know, crucial to having a really good relationship between stylist and client. But I think there also has to be, you know, a really strong connection personally. Styling, it really is quite personal. So you have to be able to, you know, speak to each other and really understand each other and have a good conversation. And I think that personal connection is so crucial as well. So, you know, even if, you know, the you may relate to someone's style really well, but just personally, it's not the best fit uh, for whatever reason. You know, it's probably, you know, not the best collaborative relationship. So I think, you know, that happens in profession. Interesting, because um, some think would think maybe really just... And, and this. Yeah, some would think, you know, just it, it's a job, it's a business, you're getting paid for it, just like... Uh, like, you know, suffer through it and collect the money and do your job. I'm sure there are stylists out there that would have that kind of mentality, right? No, of course. You know, at the end of the day, it's a business. Right. But I think at the same time, you want to acknowledge the fact that part of the job is to, you know, create something really special and memorable. And I think really the only way to really achieve that on the level that we all are aspiring to achieve, there needs to be that connection or else there will be something lost in translation. You know, you know, the connect can really become visible on the red carpet. And that's something we all want to avoid. That is perfectly said. That's coming from a real artist that does it from the artistic perspective. So I appreciate that. What is a Gelwick's girl? I mean, I know what it is, but I mean, tell me how you came up with that. I loved it. Me and Brad were <laughs> looking through your Instagram and it, Gelwick's girl, Gelwick's girl. I'm like, I like that. I want to trademark an Irani girl, but my girls would all be miserable like <laughs> me probably. <laughs> what is a Gelwick's girl? A Gelwick's girl. I mean, honestly, I, I just, I love the alliteration, but you know, I think I like to think of it almost as like, we're kind of this club or like this, you know, family, this group. And it's kind of just that way to, you know, the common denominator. And, you know, I think it's just, I like the fun with everything. And so I think that's just like a way to really exemplify that and, you know, have that showcased online. Okay. Any tips? Okay. We already know about the Spanx and all the other tips, but we, you know, for people listening, girls, even for men, I know you style men and women. Are there any tips? Like we know about the Spanx, as I said, there's also from that movie with Sandra Bullock, where you put the preparation H under your eyes for the bags. But is there any really good tips that you, you can share with us for men or women? How can you make me taller? Any way you can make me six foot two, there's no tip for that. <laughs> there's nothing. Nothing's going to work Trust me. It, if, if there was, I would be all over it. Trust me. <laughs> Biggest key, and I think what's, you know, the good part about this is that it's not something you need to purchase necessarily or you need to have on hand, but it's just understanding your body. And I think that's really what it comes down to. You know, I think some people you know, dress for other people and they just aren't really looking at themselves and kind of really thinking about what's going to look best on me. And I think once you fully just really grasp, like for example, like you talk about being 6'2", I would love to be 6'2". <laughs> like there's, I would dress probably, you know, much different and wear different things, but I'm not, I'm 5'8" you know, so I have to dress accordingly. And the same goes for every person. I think really just if you understand your body and really take that into account when you're shopping and getting dressed every day, then that's 
really one of the most important things you can do. Um, and, you know, it's maybe harder than putting on a pair of Spanx, but, you know, it's also just something that, you know, can be ingrained in your everyday routine. I think that's great. I think that's great advice. I, I do think that um, women have, not so much men, but women have a distorted view of their body from what I've learned in styling and being in the fashion business and having my store. You know, nobody's really kind of ever happy with what they see in the mirror. And, you know, sometimes some of these women are absolutely beautiful and they have great legs, but they always, they always ask, is this a fat mirror? I'm like, oh, my ankles look fat or like the silliest thing. And I'm just thinking to myself, you're wasting your life away. In 10 years, you're going to look back and be like, wow, I was gorgeous. <laughs> I honestly, though, I think it's, I, it's the same for men too. You know, I think it maybe isn't as discussed as much or, you know, maybe when they're standing in front of the mirror, it's not being vocalized. But I, you know, I really think it's, a universal, everybody has that self-consciousness when they step in front of the mirror and are maybe trying something a little bit out of their comfort zone, um, you know? So I think, I, it's, I think it's something that every single person, man or woman, or however they identify, is really struggling with. Interesting, because I know you worked for GQ, so you must have some, you know, experience in that. What did you do for GQ when you were working there? So GQ was my first job out of college. Uh, I graduated a semester early. I moved to New York. Then we running around Manhattan like a crazy person just interviewing everywhere. And I was fortunate to get GQ, but there I was just a fashion assistant. So I was supporting the editors and really all of the fashion team to keep the closet organized, picking up samples, returning samples, assisting in the fittings with models or uh, if we have an upcoming shoot. So really that GQ was kind of the, you know, fashion 101 uh, where I learned really the nitty gritty of how to you know, main, what, what the business really is and how to maintain a closet and how to um, take care of clothes and everything that every single fashion professional, especially stylist, should be aware of. Yeah, that's interesting because um, I think a lot of people don't realize that how difficult it is when you start, especially in the very beginning. It's like you're doing the taking care of the clothes and making sure, you know, you're having respect for the stuff, for the, for the merchandise, for the fashion, and things have to be put back. I mean, I remember lending stuff to, uh, who was it? I think it was um, Jennifer Lopez. And things came back a mess. I mean, things came back a mess. Not that I don't love her. I still love her. And I give her anything, anytime. I think she has fabulous style. And I'm not even saying it was her fault. It could have been whoever was taking care of it. But we sent it to, to a hotel here in New York City. When we got it back, it's like they were mismatched and things were, you know, just scratched, whatever. But yeah, there is something very important about learning the, um, from the bottom up. Absolutely. And I think, you know, part of that just comes from, you know, being respectful of, for anyone who works with me, assistance interns, I would, even if, you know, the garment comes, you know, a, a, you know, a beautiful gown comes in a shopping bag, we're going to return it on a hanger. We're going to, you know, return it. If the jewelry comes just all, you know, in a Ziploc bag, which I've had fine jewelry come to me in a Ziploc bag, just jumbled together, we're going to return it in tissue paper and bag it up nicely. Um, because there's, it's not doing, you know, we're, it's like this, we're all trying to achieve the common goal here and it doesn't help anybody if, you know, the gown you requested and you're really hoping to shoot for the cover or wear on the red carpet has a huge, you know, stain on it just because people aren't being careful. We all, we are, we're all going for the same goal here. Okay. I think that um, there's a lot to learn from what you said. I think that it all stems for, like, for a lot of people. I think it stems from the upbringing. 
I think if you have a good upbringing and respect for things, I think it's just innate. It's in your DNA. I, we, me and Brad teach our kids, you know, pick your clothes up. You know, we try to teach them just have respect for the things around you. So it's hard. You have to keep repeating yourself a thousand times, which is now I realize why there are so many like annoying people in the world because parents get tired. At some point, you're like, just fucking put it in the toilet. Do whatever you want because you just can't repeat it a thousand times. You have to. If you want to raise decent people, you have to keep repeating yeah. yourself. You have to have respect. Okay, you also worked for um, Teen Vogue. Mm -hmm. And yeah, what Teen is, Vogue. Tell me Sorry, about go it. Go for it. No, no, no. You tell me about it. What's a celebrity booker? So, Teen Vogue as a entertainment. So I was helping book the celebrity talent for the print magazine online the social media and it really was such an exciting position to be in um i was really just given this amazing opportunity to dive into this brand that is already so iconic but really was evolved rapidly and just meet really the up-and-coming talent whether they were actors actresses musicians activists artists and talk to them about what they're working on what they are you know excited about and figuring out how they, they can fit into the Teen Vogue brand so it was really this ideal, you know, I, this ideal position of just getting to meet the most creative, interesting teens and, you know, some people even older than being a teenager um, who are just doing incredible work and getting to have conversations with them and figure out how we can shoot them and really showcase them sometimes for the very first time to the world. So, uh, you know, we're going to talk about this a little later, you, you know, because I know you published articles about, you know, your depression growing up. And um, I wanted to know if you ever came across people, especially with these younger people that you felt um, maybe might have been going through something like depression, especially in the business that you're in and who you're, you know, casting. Did you ever find a connection or ever try to help anybody? Not in the sense of, you know, really on that very personal level, like outside of the, outside of work. But I think what's so interesting and special about the, this new generation is the level of vulnerability that they have. You know, they're, they grow up in the social, with social media, where it's all kind of just about telling about your life and being super uh, open. And so there's this other new layer of openness about whatever they're going through in their life um, that I have seen with this age group. So it's almost like it's expected sometimes, you know, to have this layer of vulnerability and openness, which, you know, I don't know if it's necessarily even fair, but to have that expectation. But, you know, I really thought that was interesting how it was really forthcoming and people wanting to sh tell people what they're going through, especially when they're having such a big platform and they recognize that they're able to help somebody. And uh, did you work with Anna Wintour? Was there any direct contact with you or indirect contact with you and Anna Wintour? I did not have any direct contact with him. Um, she, you know, obviously is the artistic director of Conde Nast, so she has a hand in all of the projects. Yeah. Uh, but I wasn't directly dealing with her. Yeah. Because there's been so much, you know, gossip around Andre Leontali's new book. It's amazing how somebody who's been around for so, so long you suddenly, you know, discover, you know, these innuendos of how she's maybe racist and doesn't like fat people. You know, he said that in an interview many years ago. This wasn't even for his book, Andre Leontali. And Ralph Rucci, the designer, 
you know, kind of implied she's an evil monster. So it's just interesting. I just think all of these things are very interesting that goes on behind the fashion business yet, you know, nobody ever wants to talk about that. Everyone just forges ahead and pretends everything, everything is, you know, great. Okay. So I know you've been in a relationship. I know you want to get off that topic. I feel the uncomfortableness through, through the phone. So we're off of it. Just for the record, I said it. I said it, Anna, not Andrew. It was me. So come after me. Okay, so I know you're in a relationship and we discussed it last time and it's been what, a couple of years? I think you said three, if I remember correctly. Yeah, three years. Wow, okay. And is this the longest relationship you've been in or? Uh, yes, it's actually the first relationship for both of us. Wow, okay. And what, what makes it work? I think uh, for both of us, communication is so important. And, you know, I think we really take that to heart and take it very seriously of having very open dialogue about everything. And I really think that's just been, you know, the most important thing in terms of really having a sustainable, happy, healthy relationship. Yeah. It's just having that open dialogue and about everything. I think it's so important. It sounds easy, but you know, it's not very easy, or at least it wasn't easy for me. So, you know, when you say just, you know, no. when people say and psychiatrists and couples counselors, because we've been to them, me and Brad, to be honest with each other and try to talk to each other. It sounds easy because all you have to do is tell them what's wrong, but it's really not. You know, it, it, mm -hmm. it triggers emotions. It triggers you know, you're afraid it's going to trigger a problem for the day or future problems. So you kind of hold it in, or at least I did. And then what would happen is I'd blow up. And so my communication just turned out to be resentment. So I think it is mm -hmm. great. And the fact that you've kind of mastered it at such a young age is an accomplishment in itself, aside from everything else that you've accomplished. That in itself is a huge accomplishment. So yeah. Good luck to you with that. Well, I don't know if I've mastered it. Okay. So <laughs> you know, I think, means... you know, it is, it, well, it, I mean, it's hard work, you know, just like you said. Um, so I think, you know, for anyone to say they've mastered it, you know, I'd be skeptical because um, I think it's an ongoing, you know, process that can be uncomfortable. It can be, you know, just challenging to really have that vulnerability and have that openness with somebody else. Um, you know, I think I, we've both seen how effective it is and how great it is for us. So I think we are, so I know we are both really willing and happy to do that extra work, which again, is, it's not easy by any means, but we, I think I've seen firsthand the effectiveness of it, so. Right. Is uh, he in the fashion business as well? He used to be a professional ballet dancer. So he has an appreciation for what I do. And I really appreciate what he does. But it's nice that there's some, uh, there's a difference in what we do uh, during the day. Yeah, I agree. I think that's great when you have people kind of from two different worlds. I feel like it balances it out. Because, you know, Brad, you know, um, he's an industrial designer. And when I met him, he was, um, at the time he was, he was living in London. I, I met him when he just came back. And it's just, uh, he was such a nice guy from Ohio. I know that's where you're from. And he was so mm -hmm. nice. And, you know, I was from New York. I'm from Brooklyn, New York to be, you know. So I say things kind of like as they are, not to be mean in any way, but you know, I can't watch words. It's not my thing. And I'll have everyone's back. I, I love everyone. If I'm on the street and I see anyone in trouble, I'll go to help them. But, you know, it's those New York kind of traits where you're so rushing that you're not always nice mm -hmm. enough to everyone around you, which I try to concentrate on now, especially since I've had my kids. You know, I make sure to say hello to even the bums on the corner. I say hi. I'll you know, I try to give everyone, because just to show my kids, you know, they really did make me better. Yeah. Not because I really so much want to be better. I just don't want them to be assholes. Do you know what I'm saying? So it's like now I have to be better and it's more work for me. So I'm doing a lot <laughs> more work on myself that I didn't want to have to do at my age, but I'm doing it because I, I don't want two more assholes in the world. So that's what I got to do. 
But um, I, I what I loved was reading. You're doing your part. I'm doing my part. I'm trying. Trust me, it's not easy, and I don't want to do it. So I hope that counts somewhere up in the universe. Um, so the thing that I really love, aside from your work, which I love, I love your honesty. I love your honesty. Well, before I get to that, I want to know, are you a fashion controller in your relationship? Not at all. Oh, really? I, I, no, I think you're, yeah, no, I, it, I, it stays at work for me. God bless you. You're going to have to teach me how to do that because me and Brad, I used to take his pants when I started getting into that little bit of a drop crotch thing, I, and I you know, bought a little bit of Rick Owens, but it was too drastic for me. It was just, I just wanted a little, so I had my tailor put a piece like a half moon in all my pants just to let it drop a little. So it didn't look like it was like grabbing my, I'm going back like literally maybe 12, 13 years ago is when it started. I would take Brad's mm -hmm. pants to the tailor and do it. And he had no idea. He would just put them on, he had no idea. It's crazy. I'm so freaking controlling oh, my children. My yeah. My children, I was able to control them up until they hit maybe five years old, four and a half. And you know, my daughter would tell me no collars. I'm like, what do you mean? No collar. I just bought you all these things from Paris with little French collars. And I want you to look like a timeless French little child. No, you know, they go to school, they see kids in t-shirts and sweatpants and leggings, and they think that's the cool thing. And so I told Brad, listen, that is going to put me in the hospital. Nothing else. You know, heart condition runs in my family. Everything runs in my family. But I said, you know what's going to put me in the hospital? My lack of control and seeing my son in like, you know, jersey shirts that, you know, sports people wear and her just wearing t-shirts and leggings. But I'm trying very hard to, <laughs> to let go of it. A lot of medication. <laughs> I'm kidding, but I guess I'm open it. to it. A lot I of medication, it. but I need it. But now getting back to the article that you wrote, you wrote great articles and you wrote them, right? You weren't being interviewed. You wrote these articles. One was for the Hollywood Reporter and one was for the Huffington Post. And what I loved is that, you know, I understand depression very well. Um, I've never had depression, but I've had other things. I've had anxiety and I've had other things, but I understand it because I've had friends that have been very depressed and I always would know when it was really triggered and when it was bad. There were always little signs of how they would act to me. And ironically, when they were apathetic is when I knew they were, they were being triggered. You know, it, it was, you know, being intensified. I want to know for you, you wrote the article and you said you had self-hatred. What does self-hatred feel like? I, like I, that I, I can't relate to. I don't know that, what that would feel like. It's a good question. I mean, I don't even know how to describe it. It's, it's, I mean, it's the, it's, I think it's one of the worst things. You know, I think for me, one of the biggest obstacles thus far has been shedding that and finding, you know, compassion and love for myself. I think, you know, part of, you know, what I expressed in any of the, any of the essays that I've written is just that uncomfortable, that sense of that really deep, visceral, being uncomfortable in your own skin and that stemming into something just much deeper with sturdier roots. And it really can take hold of you. And especially at such a young age when, you know, people, when I, I'll use myself uh, in this, you know, when I, when I was, you know, discovering my sexuality and, all of that culminating at one time when other people are your peers and classmates are kind of recognizing that within you, even before you've recognized it and telling you about it and not really knowing how to process that. And then coupled with just normal adolescence, you know, that really, for me at least, that took a really deep toll on me. And I think so much of what I've tried to write about or and showcase is that process and the 
hard work it takes to kind of overcome that and really curb your thinking. So much of it really just has to come, you know, it sounds cheesy, but it really just has to come from within. You can't expect somebody else to do it for you or just say something differently to you and everything disappears. You know, it really has to change within your mind, within your own mind. What age were you when you realized that you had this self-hatred? Um, let's say maybe elementary school. Okay. Or, you know, I think you, you kind of become aware of things, you know, at deeper levels as you get older, of course. But, you know, I think my things really started to affect me probably like in seventh grade, fifth, fifth, sixth, seventh grade. But I think, you know, so much of how we perceive ourselves at a young age is based on others. So when you're getting that amplified back to you uh, at school and, you know, on the playground, you know, it's, it's, I would, I mean, anyone who was able to put a shield up at that young age, you know, at recess and have that other kids words not affect them, I would love to know how they did that and you know what was going on in their mind but for me I, w- I didn't have that so it happened for me at a very young age do you think it had anything to do with knowing you were different or do you think it was just kind of a chemical imbalance or something else i mean depression definitely runs in my family so i think that's been um a huge factor but i think it also you know um was circumstantial as well. So I think it was kind of this perfect storm in my case, where both really combined with each other. When you say circumstantial, what you're saying is that knowing that you were different, knowing that you were gay, in addition to depression running in your family. Yeah. And even, you know, not knowing I was different, but people telling me I was different, you know, that that can be extremely confusing um, when it's something that you're not conscious of is being pointed out to you on such a profound level um, that it's very confusing for anybody, but especially a little kid. So yes, that, that's what I mean by circumstantial. Yeah, I I could relate to that. I can relate to that because I remember being really young and, um, you know, I was always kind of popular. I really was. I I, I was, everything was, you know, I didn't have a rough time. But I do remember people every once in a while saying, oh, he's gay. Oh, he's gay. It would come out of nowhere and I never did anything and I didn't even know myself. So I remember those were the bullets that, for me, that were hard to take because here I was thinking I was so part of the gang and so accepted, which I probably was. But hearing these things ha- say being said behind my back, I guess, made me feel and made me question myself. And I think it, it mm. gave me insecurities. I suddenly became insecure around a lot of people because, you know, I don't know what they're saying behind my back. But you were diagnosed with severe clinical depression and suicidal ideation. You wanna tell people what ideation is? I'm sure it's the idea of it, but how does, tell me how that came to be, ideation. Yeah, I mean, ideation, it really becomes more than just fleeting thoughts, I think. Yeah, to be honest, I don't know the clinical definition, so I don't wanna butcher that, but from my context of understanding, it's, this one becomes more than just a fleeting thought, you know, once, once a year or something. Um, and for me, that was a kind of a pivotal moment, you know, with that, with those diagnosis, diagnoses where it was, there was a name put to what I was feeling, you know, because for especially in those cases and at that age, you don't really know that this is a common thing that other people may have gone through this themselves or are going through it and that there it's like an actual illness. And so I think for me, even just being 
it being given a name to me um, was really pivotal. Uh, your parents, this is what I got the chills that I read, that your parents had to sign a release of liability for the school psychologist. So if anything happened to you, they, they can't be held liable for anything. I mean, that mm -hmm. when I read that, I, I had the chills. That's crazy. I mean, first of all, how many siblings are you? Do you have any siblings? I have an older sister who's two years older. Who's two years older. I can't even imagine. I mean, and from the article, your parents seem like they were amazing and so supportive and did all the right things. Did it affect your sister's life in any way? Like your parents suddenly, you know, taking all their attention and now running to Andrew's side saying, you know, we got to, you know, take care of him. I mean, I mean, first of all, yes. I mean, my family, I mean, there are no words to express how supportive they were, and that includes my sister. You know, I think she under, she understood, you know, that this was something that needed attention. There was no, you know, why is he getting more attention? That was never, I can Initial. guarantee that was never something that crossed her mind. It was kind of this, you know, we all need to band it's all hands on deck, which, you know, I think is kind of the most I, ideal, perfect scenario. And it's kind of always been that way, at least in our, my immediate family for whatever anyone's going through, you know, not just in something as severe as this, but it's just kind of all hands on deck, whoever needs the support at that moment. I love that mentality. I love that saying, you know, with a family, all hands on deck. Now, were you out of the closet at the time? Did they know you were gay or they, during this time, they still didn't know. They didn't. Did you tell them? I didn't. I did not vocalize it until junior year of high school to them and then to my peers until senior year. So it wasn't until then that was vocalized. Yeah. Okay. And you also went to a treatment center and you told, you know, you say that at the treatment center that they taught you these valuable tools to kind of, you know, confront and manage your emotions. Is there anything maybe you can tell anyone that's listening that's going through this? Because I have to again say that I really appreciate your um, honesty and being open about it. And to me, this really is so important because I know, I mean, I know so many people myself that have gone through depression and it never really goes away. Am I right? It just gets managed. Never really goes Absolutely. away. Like you said, you always have to really kind of be mindful of the people that you know have this problem because if they act a certain way a little different you got to you know figure out is this an episode are they having an episode are they spiraling are they going to be home for the next three weeks in bed it's it's a scary thing and it's a constant thing but maybe you can tell us some of the tools that you learned in this center to manage yeah i think you know i don't know if tool wise you know i don't know if i could can really elaborate on that just because i'm not a medical professional. But I think this stems back to what we were saying earlier. You know, I think the biggest tool for me was learning to love myself. That was the biggest and most critical tool because, you know, how else are you going to kind of dig yourself out of that hole if you don't have that? You have no reason to really. So for me, that the biggest tool, fulcrum, you know, motivator to put in that work. And, you know, being at that center, I think was not, I think it, it was the most life changing, you know, pivotal part of my life. So I'm sure that you had therapy for a while. Yeah, mm -hmm. I did too, just so you know, in full disclosure, I've said it a billion times already. Everybody knows that my joke is I've spent a million dollars in therapy. I, I said it earlier. And um, so I'm a strong believer in it, but I'm sure that that was one of the first things you did. Did you go on any medications? Was that a part of the program? And what would you do now looking back? Is there anything you maybe could have done differently? I mean, maybe just earlier signs, whether earlier signs or, you know, the way you would talk to kind of love yourself, which is really the number one thing everyone says about every gender, you know, about men and women, about everyone around the world, you have to love yourself first. 
first and foremost, you really do have to love yourself. And when you do, you'll have patience and love other people. How do you, I guess my question is, first of all, how does someone know if they really don't love themselves? I mean, I know someone, I know someone that won't look in the mirror. You know, she has depression. She won't look in the mirror. You know, we go to a restaurant, she'll dodge a mirror. She can't sit facing a mirror. She's beautiful, but she won't look into a mirror. Like, I don't know, is that, I don't know if that falls into the category if she hates herself or it could be other stuff. I don't know. So how do you really know if you have it? And then how do you kind of get out of it? I mean, like depression, we know there's a pill for that. You know, how do you get out of the not hating yourself is, I guess, the more difficult thing for me to try to, you know, understand. And probably for people listening, it's hard. How do you, there's no pill for that. I mean, that's the, that's the big question, isn't it? How do you do it? <laughs> um, you know, I, 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 I wish I could say, you know, and I know it's, you know, not the ideal answer, but I, it, it's so, it's such a personal journey for each individual person that I think it would be, you know, a mistake for me to put a blanket explanation on just because, you know, I, for me, when I was in that space, I always kind of resented when people would tell me what to do or how to do it because it, you know, that didn't feel right to me, you know? So I think just having that acknowledgement also helpful. Okay. Fair enough. Do your parents still live in Ohio? Yeah, yeah, they're still there. They do. You, do you go visit them yeah, when I can? Uh, obviously, you know, as you know, it's the work makes it sometimes difficult to get away. But I, you know, it's nice to get home to Ohio and see them and the okay. dog and be in the suburbs. And good. That's kind of what I was getting to. So you have no aversion to going back to Ohio. It doesn't trigger a little bit of depression in you because I'm from Brooklyn. And when I got out, when I had to go back to Brooklyn all the time, I don't know. I'd always, I, I would dread it from days before. Every time I had to go, I would, I'd just be like, I don't want to go. So, but you didn't have that experience. I think there can be, there certainly can be triggers, but I think overall, you know, I'm in such a better place that it almost feels like a distant kind of memory and like a different person who I was back then. So I, I think now it's really, you know, a warm place for me. So it's, it's a nice change. Well, that's great because I find that that's where the growth is, you know, when you can confront and go back and not, you know, when the memories really kind of the bad memories, you know, subside, that's how you know you're really, you know, getting better. You wrote in the Huffington Post about, about the high school homophobe being a homo, which was funny. And I was just curious, how did you figure that out? Was he one of the guys you dated at the end? You know how like these movies where, you know, you date the, 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 the football player pushes you around and at the end you wind up dating? Was that your situation? Absolutely not. Okay. That was just, you know, the trickle down of, news coming to me but it really is important even if it's a little slight thing and if it's nothing it's nothing but is there any advice you could give any younger people that you know might not know what's wrong with them but they feel something is wrong whether it's you know self-loathing whether it's a little bit of depression you know my thing is i get anxiety anxiety has been my thing and it got worse as i got older and when my mom was sick it got that's when it triggered it to be really bad. And even though, you know, I lost my mom years ago, I find that I don't know, I'm still trying to figure out if it's habitual. You know, I wake up at five in the morning with my heart racing and, you know, at some point, how much medication could you take? You know, it's, I wind up take, I wind up stopping everything because I feel like it's endless, you know, it stops working at a certain point, then you need to take more. So I just stopped everything and I'm kind of dealing with the anxiety and it's so real. It's annoying because it's so real. And, you know, for people that don't understand and some people don't understand depression as well and don't understand self-loathing. Is there any advice you can give to anyone like from the experience that you went through in school? I think the, 
the advice I try to give is, and it's again, kind of goes back to what we were saying about, you know, relationships is communication. Um, for me, I was not able to begin the work of getting better until I vocalized that something didn't feel right, that I needed maybe more help than other people with certain things. Um, you know, some things that seemed really easy for other people, I seem to struggle with a little bit more. You know, so I think my advice is just to have that really painful, uncomfortable dialogue with, you know, whoever it is that you feel comfortable with. Um, you know, but I think just being able to say, hey, I think I need some or some help or maybe it doesn't even need to be that. It's just, hey, I'd love to talk to somebody, you know, that right. maybe feels like however you need to frame it to make yourself feel comfortable and to vocalize it. But I think it's all just about having, being able to speak about it. So even now, like, uh, it's like one of the reasons that I write these essays is, you know, for me, that's, you know, feels really good for me to be able to write about it and kind of like open up about it. And I think, you know, even on a more micro level, having, you know, somebody to talk to and work these things through is really the starting line. Well, I have to tell you, God bless you for that, because a lot of people are not willing to talk about it. Everybody wants to hide it unless you're a huge celebrity and you're like, oh, well, I was a tomboy. I was picked on. Nobody could relate to you. Sorry. You know what I'm saying? When you're going to like these red carpet events and $10,000 gowns being driven in a limo with security around you. Yeah, it's easy to say then, you know, but nobody can relate to that. But, you know, people can relate to somebody like you. You know, and I appreciate it. And it's great that you're able to talk about it and help them. I wanted to ask you, what advice are you giving people going on job interviews? Because I know you kind of started this kind of a curriculum or you were coaching people on, you know, tell me about that on, on, on um, styling and how to get jobs. I don't know exactly what it was, but maybe you can tell me. Yeah, I actually just wrapped it up. But right when you know, COVID really hit, I was so sad that all these uh, internships for college students were getting canceled. Um, personally, I loved going to New York every summer and interning. I thought that was the most valuable, incredible experience. And it was it was, it was, I just felt bad really that all these students were missing out on that. So I created a six week online program called Fashion Career Accelerator, which I really just framed as the next best thing to an in-person in internship where mm -hmm. we went over really in kind of the nitty gritty details, what it actually means to work in fashion, what it means be a stylist what are other careers in fashion um, and on kind of a macro level and what each of those entails and we I had a group of 14 students from around the country and it was the most fun you know exciting I mean I was like, I was so inspired by these kids, um, not kids, these young adults. They're, you know, they took the time out of their weekdays when they could be watching Netflix or, you know, doing whatever and investing in their career and really trying to absorb material. I had, you know, office hours and I, full, I went full Professor Gelwicks and, uh, I mean, it was, it was so much fun. You don't look like Professor Gelwicks to me. You look like that um, cool kind of mad designer. 
like with the cool hair and the glasses, like the <laughs> mad scientist, but a designer. But then again, I could see professor. I actually, I could see that with a professor. So what advice would you give to people going on interviews, these young adults that want to go on these interviews? I'm sure they're so nervous. I'm sure they're very nervous and, you know, maybe interning or trying to get jobs. What advice do you have? Do they bring an apple? <laughs> I think what I tried to express to them is, you know, A, they have to come into the understanding that nobody really knows what's happening. You know, it's not just them. Every single person, every single professional, every single facet of this industry is in the same confusing boat. So coming into, just having that frame of reference, I think is honestly just very helpful. Um, and also that it's a time when you kind of have to just get creative, you know, just like with them taking the fashion career accelerator course, you know, the normal traditional roots of how we educate ourselves is temporarily paused. So how do we circumvent those and how do we still continue learning and continuing our professional growth. And it's just about being creative during that time. So, you know, I really stressed to the students that they, you know, this is a perfect time to just, you know, expand their knowledge of the industry on the very practical level of, you know, who are the key players? Who are some emerging designers? Who are, you know, stylists? What you know, magazines are there besides the three that everybody, every single person knows, you know, really just broadening their general knowledge of the industry. Uh, and I think just trying to utilize this time as best as possible. Um, I don't think the press pause, I think it's a time where you can continue and should continue to keep learning and growing, but, you know, figuring out how to do that within the current climate. I think that's really good advice. I think that's really good advice. Um, I wonder though, for all the people out there that, you know, and I've had this conversation before, I think I had it with uh, Christina Palacci, who is, I know is a friend of yours. And we said, there are so many people out there that, you know, have good taste and, they think they can just be a stylist and it's just so easy. Oh, I want to be a stylist. It's great. You go to beautiful showrooms, you style celebrities, but it's not nearly that easy. Is, do you ever have to tell somebody or give anybody a reality check or that's not your job? You just let everyone follow their dream and give them the, the road and then, you know, let them figure it out on their own. No, I try to be as forthcoming as possible um with as nicely as possible um be right no it's not just here's a cute dress put it on it's so much more than that um and you know part of what i tried to do with this course and just with interns who you know may work with me in it in the past when it hasn't been covid is showing to them what really goes into it. You know, I think we can all look at, you know, stylists and be like, oh my God, what a dream job. And, and it is a dream job, you know, but it's, I mean, same with being a designer, you know, you could say, oh, how fabulous you get to sit and sketch and, you know, play with pretty clothes and fabrics. No, I mean, that's a very small percentage of what you do. Um, sure, it can be the most glamorous, you know, but that's such a small part of what we do. And I think, and what I hope to do and have been hoping to do is to shine a light on those parts. Because um, if you can still love that, those glam moments while also, you know, really enjoying and getting through those trickier, not so fun moments, then you have a real possi possibility right. for having a thriving, long career. Um, so, yeah. 
Well, that's a good segue into my next question. What lifestyle trends do you think we're going to see for fall or just going forward in general? I am just hoping, I think this, just through kind of speaking with other professionals in fashion entertainment, I think everyone's kind of having this reckoning of sorts where they're realizing, oh, I think I do need personal time to, you know, recharge my battery and I can't travel to five cities in one week and be on email 24 seven. You know, I mean, don't get me wrong. Like I, I'm on email 24 seven and, you know, I, during when it's non COVID, you know, it is traveling a ton and really long hours, but I'm hoping that, you know, in the fall and, you know, as we move on from this, hopefully, um, that we can kind of keep that in mind and that that kind of becomes ingrained in our lifestyle that we kind of need to kind of keep this, we need to have more balance. I think, you know, especially in this industry, we're all go, 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 go. And that's part of the excitement of it. You know, for me, that's right. part of what I love about it. <clears throat> right. You know, I, I love that part of this. But at the same time, you know, I've also realized how nice this has been to recharge a little bit and breathe for a second. Um, and how helpful that can be as well. Yeah, I mean, for me, it's I, I look at it so differently because I think I agree with you on some level, but I'm in the retail business. So I've got a store mm. filled with merchandise. I mean, you know, Balenciaga, yeah. Chloe, I mean, the list is endless that is just sitting there getting old by the minute. We both know that the milk in the refrigerator lasts more than fashion does in a store. You know what I'm saying? Like two months after you get it, people yeah. want, that, want it at 50% off, you know? And so it- totally. So this is the scary part. And I don't know if Couture for now is going to really make such a comeback other than of course, red carpet celebrities. I don't know in my circle, even the Upper East Side, which is, you know, 10021, the best zip code in the world. You know, we have socialites, we have people that live like movie stars. They don't play movie stars, but they are in real life. They're always doing stuff, mm-hmm. but even they have enough stuff in their closets. They don't need to buy anything for the next three, four years. You know, I've had somebody mm-hmm. tell me that I can sell you some stuff. I mean, this is a woman who endless amount of spending. When she says that, you know, everyone's kind of taking a pause. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's, I, I, I couldn't agree more with what you're saying, too. Um, and that's why it really is, it's so complicated, um, it you know, because there are those instances, cases just like yours, where you have all that merchandise setting, and that needs to be moved. Um, and how do you go about that, um, in a way where you can continue the business and grow the business and just keep everything alive. Um, I mean, it's incredibly stressful. You know, I, I, feel, I, I am, I am, you know, part of the comfort I almost get from this is that we're, everyone is kind of dealing with this as well. You know, it's not just right. the celebrity stylists, right. you know, it's not just people in fashion, you know, it's really, everybody is kind of having to figure this out together, um, which almost gives me a little bit of comfort in a way. Yeah. Yeah, I I know it does. That's the only thing that gives me a little bit of comfort, but you know, we're also trying to re-strategize now having the best beautiful Mm -hmm. things in the shop is not now our biggest priority because I know P and it's funny, even before COVID we stopped buying the runway pieces not for any other reason, though, other than the fact that nobody buys it, or at least never at full mm. price. You know, when I started Chucky's and even years after, my whole thing was buying Runway. It was going to Paris. It was buying Runway, the Azadina Lias, the Dolce Gabbana Runway. The, you know, everywhere we went, the Miu Miu, everything was Runway for us. You know, even the Balenciagas. And they were crazy looking stuff, but that was the thing. I found in the last few years, it's just pointless when you can get everything everywhere online. It's so diluted, it's not special anymore. So to text your customers, oh, we just got the runway, they just click online and they see what it is. Nah, I don't like it. As opposed to in the olden days, Chucky's was known 
for bringing in those few pieces that were so fabulous. So I think for us, the strategy is going to be more, you know, streetwear, daywear, and we have to figure out a way to make it interesting, you know, because we don't want to see people in sneakers all day, although I love them. I love them. But I mean, how many of the sneakers, you know, we have the Stella, the, the McQueen sneakers, the Balenciaga, the Balenciaga. We have all these sneakers. They're great. But at the end of the day, they're still sneakers. You know, I want to see girls out of leggings. I want to see them in stretch pants. They could be cheap pants. Take a one size bigger. That's my trick. That's my trick. Take <laughs> stretch pants by who? I don't care if it's Ann Taylor. They're like, they feel like sweatpants. Buy them one size bigger. Let them drop off the hip just a little bit. Wear those with a sneaker, you know, you give it a twist. You know what I'm saying? So, yeah, I just, we, we have to mm -hmm. kind of be creative to, um, you know, make people, we have to just make them feel excited about something. We have to inspire them. You know, right now, I Absolutely. feel like there's not really inspiration, but we'll get there and you're going to help us get there. So tell me about the book coming October 13th, The Queer Advantage. It's coming out October 13th. I tried to get as much information but I couldn't. So you tell me. <laughs> yeah, we, we just announced it. Um, it's been a passion project I've been working on for over two years now. Um, but I interviewed 51 of the most inspiring, successful people on how their queer identity has been a has positively impacted their career and their life. Um, and, you know, I've, in the past few years, um, and this is what kind of started the book, is that I've realized that that part of me that I hated for so long and resented for so long and that I thought was going to be the biggest obstacle in my entire life was in fact, one of the best things um, and has been one of the greatest gifts and advantages I've experienced, not just in my personal life, but professionally as well. Um, and so I was interested in whether other people felt that and especially the people at the very top of their fields in all fields, politics, entertainment, finance, tech, um, and it's, it was one of the most incredible experiences just getting to sit down with these people and have these really, you know, fascinating conversations on how they've perceived this as well in their own careers and in their lives. Um, and oh, I'm just, I'm so excited for people to read it. Um, I'm excited to read it. it. Because I'm yeah, going to tell you, you something. It is so true. I love, I love having a positive book about something that everyone always says is, you know, was, 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 it was an oppression for them. You know, being gay was an oppression and they were ostracized. I didn't have that experience. But, you know, me and Brad never wore our sexuality on our sleeve. We never, we just, we're not, we weren't those kind of people, which is maybe why we were gravitated towards each other. We never, you know, we just not, we never. So when people always gave us the opportunity to do things, you know, I can give you examples. Okay, I was with my brother going on a flight. It was a long flight. We get to the um, thing and he hands us the tickets and it was like 1A, first class. And so I was like, I don't understand. I don't understand. I knew that the guy was gay. I knew there was an issue with the how to give away first class in order to make room. And he thought me and my brother were a couple, and I think he gave it to us. So, I mean, that was a queer advantage. I mean, there were so many. <laughs> putting, putting our kids in school, we were the last people to enroll two kids, not one, but two. And, um, you know, they were like, oh, we don't have any room. You know, I'd call them up, and then me and Brad would show up, and, you know, they would be even more. They'd go out of their way to even be more, you know, accommodating, which they don't have to do. I don't expect that. But yes, there is definitely, I think, a queer advantage, I will say. And I'm glad that you're talking about it in the book. It's fun. It's real. And not everything is terrible. Yeah, I think for me, it was just kind of trying to change the conversation a little bit and, you know, show the positives. And, you know, I, I you know, I think... I want more positive messages about, you know, queerness. So I think 
if I, you know, if I'm able to do that and bring that into other people's lives, you know, that's so exciting for me. So, um, so yeah, it's um, coming out in October. Um, and it's, I mean, it's been the best experience. Well, I'm excited. And from there, I'm going to look forward to more books. Because when I, I'm not a big reader, but when I read books that I like, I want them to keep making them. So on that note, I'm just going <laughs> to thank, thank you, you again for coming on the show and for being so candid. I can tell you, people will feel they're not alone when they see somebody as successful as you and young talking about something so personal. Thank you, Andrew. Oh my God, thank you. And seriously, I'm so happy that I was able to come here today and see you. And, you know, I love the platform you're giving to, you know, other professionals. And um, I'm so happy we were able to do this. Great. And I look forward to seeing you in person at some point one day in New York City. Okay. Yes. Hopefully soon. Yes, definitely. You've been listening to Rich in Life with Rich Arani. If you liked what you've heard, click subscribe so you don't miss out on future episodes. Or visit us at richinlife.com. That's R-I-T-C-H in life.com. They keep trying to tell me he's